Welcome to Coach House Talks. So, Acts 27. Uh, if you've not got your Bibles, turn to Acts 27. That'd be fantastic because I'm going to kind of bounce around some verses and stuff. So, there are many stories that are told in history, but this one in Acts 27 is one of the most famous. And of all ancient stories of shipwrecks, this happens to be probably the most detailed. And because of that fact, scholars for years have studied Acts 27, just to get an idea of how boats were built, how people traveled, and what the facts were concerning seagoing voyages. I don't know about you, but if you've been on a fishing boat or spent time on a cruise, you'll be able to sympathize at least a little with the people who are part of this voyage. In chapter 27, we're gonna follow uh, Paul's route. So you can see here on this map, is he's going to Rome. He is, he believes, and I believe with him, right in the middle of the will of God. He always wanted to go to Rome. It was his heart's desire. He wrote and spoke about it. And back in chapter 19, he says, I'm going to Macedonia, the areas, excuse me, and the areas of Ukiah, then I have to go to Jerusalem for the feast. And then he said this, I must see Rome. It's got to happen. I've got to do it. Well, people warned him not to go to Jerusalem because bad things would happen. But he said, I'm ready to die if that's what the Lord wants. And sure enough, he gets arrested, taken to Caesarea, spends two years there. As Andy brought us a few weeks ago, Paul also goes through three different trials before Felix, a governor of Judea, Festus, another governor who succeeded him, and then King Agrippa. And Agrippa said at the end of 26, well, you could have escaped all this because we can't find that you've done anything wrong, but you appealed to Caesar, so you're going to Caesar. The Lord told Paul he was going to Rome, so he's on a ship, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 27, in what he believes is the will of God. Now, we're going to look at a boat trip, a storm story, but while we look at this literally, let's just keep something tucked in the back of our minds. There are some parallels spiritually with this trip and Paul's whole life, which really was a storm. He'd never had it easy. He'd followed relentlessly the will of God, but it never came simply. He fought it, it seems, at every turn. So we're going to look at it historically, but then also make some applications for us about going through trials, difficult times, storms, and what to do as we do. Now, every human being faces heartache, trouble, difficulty, every single one of us. Job said in chapter 5, verse 7, people are born for trouble as readily as sparks fly up from a fire. Jesus said the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. But though all people experience trouble, we as Christians experience a very unique kind of trouble because if you passionately love Jesus you are also aware that we have an enemy of our souls who passionately hates Jesus and his cause and Paul really understands this Paul understood that as he traveled to Listeria, Derby, Iconium, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, Philippi he, understand, or he understood that he wasn't going to a playground but a battleground that he was going to do warfare he had an enemy who was trying to stop him and so he kept that in perspective. No matter what happened here, Paul believes he's in the will of God. So chapter 27. When it was decided that we should, set, should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustine regiment. Now, 
there are a total number of 276 people on board this ship, crew members, people who watch the cargo, the captain and his small crew, and of course the prisoners. So Paul and all of them are given under the direction of this centurion, Julius. Now the backbone of the Roman army was this big guy here, a centurion. Now what is quite apparent is that Romans were actually really great at picking leaders in the military, especially among centurions. They weren't, as we know, not so good at choosing leaders in politics. A centurion looked after a century, about 100 men. There were 60 centuries in a legion, so 6,000 men in a legion. These guys were risk takers. They were bold, but they, they were steady in personality. In the New Testament, we actually find there's it's some incredible quality about them, even when it comes to understanding the principle of faith, especially faith in God. Here's a couple of examples. Jesus near Capernaum and a centurion came to him and implored him that he would heal his servant. And Jesus said, sure, I'll come to your house. Let's go. I'll follow you. And the centurion said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not worthy that you should even step onto my roof or into my home. You could just from here at a distance speak a word and I know my servant will be healed. And Jesus marveled and said, well, I haven't found this kind of faith even in all of Israel. So high marks for a centurion. At the cross, when Jesus was crucified, there was a storm, the sky darkened, there was an earthquake. And after Jesus died, the centurion presiding over him said, surely, truly, this man is the son of God. What a, a statement of faith. And then finally, we read in chapter 10 of Acts, a guy named Cornelius, another centurion. He was in Caesarea. He summoned Peter to come and tell him about the gospel. And it says that Cornelius was a man who feared God, who gave alms to the people and prayed always. Now, giving alms, if you don't know, is like an act of charity towards those less fortunate. We're talking about a Roman centurion here. You may say, well, that sounds a little bit like what a pastor would do. That, it sounds like a New Testament Christian. And that was a Roman centurion pre-conversion. So back to our boat and our centurion, Julius. And he says, so entering a ship of Adramitium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along. The coast of Asia, Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica was with us. Now let's just pause here and consider Paul on this trip. It's going to be a tough trip. His whole life's been tough. The journey is tough. Nothing comes easy. If you think I'm in the God's will, things are just going to run smooth, then I suggest you banish that thought. Yes, the Lord may open doors, create opportunities for you, confirm his will by doing so, but it doesn't mean that the path is going to be smooth and problem free. You now walk around like this guy with a target on your back and the enemy will do anything he can, though God is ultimately in control. So Paul is getting what he always wanted, sort of. He wanted to go to Rome, but he didn't just think he was going to go like this. He thought he would go as a missionary, as a clergyman, but he's going as a convict. He wanted to go to Rome. God said, absolutely, I'll let you go to Rome and I'll have Rome pick up the tab. The catch is, you've got to go as a prisoner. To get a free ride, you've got to be a prisoner and you've got to be on this prison ship. The Lord plans his steps all the way along. So the plan is to go and hug the coast, 
They were entering autumn, and it's dangerous to sail in the med in the winter. Always has been, and always will be, I'm sure. And sailors know that. So this ship is going to hug the coast, going up north along the coast of Lebanon, and then Asia Minor, and then going to cut across and stay along the coast. You'll notice that Paul also has some travelling companions. Now this is a bit weird. It's unheard of that prisoners don't get to bring travelling companions with them. The only way a travelling companion could come along with a prisoner is if they were slaves of that prisoner. So Aristarchus, the Macedonian brother, and Dr Luke would have said, we are poor slaves, or probably more likely Agrippa, as well as Festus, must have known Paul was innocent. And because he was a Roman citizen, granted him certain leeway. Because it was just unheard of that a prisoner could bring travelling companions. But Paul was allowed to do that. And he was able to bring Luke, who's the guy who's recording it for us. And so in verse 3, the next day we landed at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly. Well, this is also interesting. And he gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. Again, it's sort of odd that somebody of Roman notoriety who's in charge of prisoners would say, well, Paul, listen, you've got friends here. Go on, go for a couple of days. Go and hang out at the church that you guys started and then come back and get on the prison ship again and we'll keep going. It's odd because if a Roman centurion had a prisoner escape his control, that soldier would incur the punishment that the prisoner should have gotten. So all I can think of is that Paul was able to win his heart quickly. Maybe there was just something about Paul where this centurion said, I've been around a lot of different people and I know I can trust him. So it happened. They were at Sidon and here is Sidon. Paul got there and had a welcoming committee when he was there because there were believers at that time. In verse 4, when we, had, when we had put to sea, from there we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus. Here is Cyprus, that large island actually where Barnabas was from, if you remember. Because the winds were contrary, and when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia, and there the centurion found a ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. So they take prisoners off one boat and put them all on this boat. This boat is from Alexandria in Egypt. It's an Egyptian grain vessel. Rome got most of its wheat and bread supplies from Egypt. And we know this was a grain ship. How? Because later on it tells us in verse 38. It's lucky, isn't it? In those days, there were no passenger ships. There was no Disney cruises. There was no first class, second class, third class. There was just cargo ships and prisoners or people. So these journeys were always a combination. Now something about this ship, it was a very sturdy ship to withstand Mediterranean sea travel. However, it had some distinct advantages. Number one, it had no rudder. It was controlled by two large oars at the stern. It had one solid mast with one sail that was square and a very rudimentary basic sailing vessel. And because of that, though it was sturdy, the disadvantage was you couldn't take it into the wind. And so it could end up just about anywhere. It was sturdy, it was strong, it was slow moving, and it could not easily be controlled in problem situations. Now in verse seven, we get a feeling about the length of this trip and the time of year. The fast he's talking about here was the day of atonement. The one day of the year, Jews were required by Jewish law, Mosaic law to fast to afflict their souls. So the fast is over. 
the Feast of Tabernacles is over. The Day of Atonement is over, which means we're dealing with a time frame somewhere around mid-October, just when the weather changes and it becomes incredibly difficult to sail in the Mediterranean. So because of that, Paul advised them saying, men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. So Paul speaks up. Paul is a leader. Paul is not the captain of the ship. He's just an apostle, but he has an opinion. And he goes, men, this ain't a good idea. This is going to be a problem. Yes, Paul was a preacher, but as we know, he had a lot of experience in sea travel. He had done three missionary journeys already. He'd been on that sea and on those islands. He knew it well. In fact, do you remember what he said in 2 Corinthians 11? He said, three times I was shipwrecked. Now, between you and I, I'm not sure I get on a boat with Paul because it seems like this is the kind of journey he has. And I spent an entire night and a day adrift in the sea. So he knew the ocean. He knew the seasons of the sea. He had experience at sea. So he's given a learned opinion that's, that it's going to be a bit problematic. They are at a place known as Fair Havens. Sounds like a great place, doesn't it? It sounds sweet, Fair Havens. To be honest, every time I read that, I think of Butlins, you know, kind of like, welcome to Butlins at Fair Havens. Please don't leave your children unattended at the pool. That's kind of what it sounds like. But this is what it looks like. It wasn't a great place for sailors to spend a winter in. It was bare. So they want a bigger town. They're thinking, look, the preacher wants to stay here. I mean, you know, this is a good place for a preacher, nice and quiet, he can do his Bible studies, but not for a group of sailors. We need a bigger place to hang out for the winter. So, nevertheless, verse 11, Julius and the captain are persuaded to go to Phoenix. Now, Phoenix, although I'm not sure the boats look like that, was a seacoast town, more St. Ives than Beaumaris. Now, I want you to notice some phrases that we've read so far. Look at them again and notice them together about this particular voyage and this storm that they're heading into. Verse 4, it says the winds were contrary. Verse 7, with difficulty, we arrived with difficulty. Verse 8, passing it with difficulty. Verse 9, sailing was now dangerous. Verse 14, not long after that, a tempestuous headwind arose. Now, there's something about storms. And we know this to be a fact. Trials we go through, stormy problems in our life, we know this to be true. Storms change our comfort. That's why we hate them. No, I, I like it just the way it is, thank you. I don't want any change in my comfort zone. I don't want you to take me out of my comfort zone. But storms always do. It brings difficulty. It brings danger. It brings headwind. You think, well, I've been serving the Lord. This gets tougher and tougher as I go. Remember, the Lord spoke to Paul and confirmed he is in the will of God. And, then, and yet, though in the will of God, danger, headwind, difficulty, trial. So some of us, myself included, say, I love change. Like a new paint job on a car. I hate when things are just boring all the time. I love change. I've discovered when people say that, again, including me, what we really mean is I love change as long as I initiate that change. I don't like it if somebody else initiates it and changes my comfort in the process. I don't want to get out of my comfort zone. Yeah, I like change as long as I'm the one doing it. 
This is a difficult situation that Paul is in. However, it's needed. You and I need, from time to time, in the will of God, to get our comfort challenged. And we are always worried that our paint job might just turn out like this. You see, in life, we can get into a rut, psychologically, spiritually, as well as physically. In the US, back in the day, they used covered wagons with wooden wheels with a band of metal to go round and for the country to operate, that's how they did it. So the wagon wheel, oh, sorry, uh, not that kind of wagon wheel, uh, the other one, the other one, yep, that one, was very narrow. And it would cut grooves, especially after it would rain on the soil and it was soft. And then when it would dry, they would keep going and going and it would create a rut. And if you're in that kind of rut with that kind of wheel, it's impossible to get out. So avoid the rut or you're likely to be in it for the next 25 miles. Some of us get into ruts. We're just used to things a certain way. And then when our storm comes and we change our comfort, we flip out, we freak out. But could it be that God has something so much better than what you're already experiencing right now? And this is why the storm is coming. Perhaps the Lord has something better in mind and in store for you, but you weren't looking for it before. You were happy the way things were, but God has something better for you. You need to be shaken from that place. Now in those days, they navigated by the stars. As we know from this picture, these three dudes, they didn't have a compass either. And neither did they on the boat. They didn't have a radar or a sonar. But in this storm, they can't even use the stars because it's cloudy, it's black. They don't know where they are. They're afraid because it's a legendary place where ships can get caught. And so they did a common practice. They put ropes underneath the ship cables tightened it up so that the sturdy wood wouldn't come apart in strong storm in verse 18 we find them throwing grain overboard then in verse 19 they're not just throwing the cargo they're throwing the ship's tackle and that's kind of a generic term for things like beds tables any kind of furnishings at all they'll just throw it overboard this is a cargo ship and they know that they wouldn't get paid unless they delivered the full amount of grain it's duty its sole purpose is to bring grain from Egypt to Rome, but now they're just chucking it overboard. And there is a second principle in the storms here. They don't just change your comfort zone, they change your values. When you have a storm, suddenly that grain becomes less important. When it comes to the wages of your life, throw the grain overboard. Throw the tackle overboard, it changes your values. Suddenly other things are more important to you than just that. And storms will do that. It's one of the refining ways that the Lord uses them in our lives. It changes our value system. It turns salesmen into survivors. It changes entrepreneurs into endurers. Storms will change your value. Now, in verse 20, neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. Remembering no compass, they're navigating by the stars, but they can't see any. And no small tempest beat on us. And I think that's the graphic way of saying it was a big old storm. All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. You just have to picture utter despair. They have fought headwinds. They have fought this massive storm. 
they can't seem to navigate they're afraid they can't control the ship they're throwing stuff overboard they can't see the stars we're dead we resign ourselves to death at sea but after a long abstinence from food now they're fasting not because they're holy but because they're sick to their stomach nobody wants to eat they want to just survive and it says paul called the crew together and said men you should have listened to me in the first place and not left crete don't you hate it when someone says that to you? And Paul said, let me tell you what to do. I think you ought to stay here in Fairhaven. And they said, oh, no, 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 you're just a preacher. What do you know? Well, now the preacher was right. And so he says, well, you should have listened to me. But he didn't do that to rub it in as much as to give them better counsel now. In verse 21, you'll notice that Paul starts to take charge. It's what leaders do. When, when there are difficulties and everybody's burnt out and there is no way out, a leader arises. And he moves now from captive to captain. He said, you should have listened to me, but don't despair. Take heart, cheer up. The Lord appeared to me through a messenger and he gave him a message of God. Now storms will do this to you. They'll bring out the best in you or they'll bring out the worst in you. And the courage to carry on is tested in difficulty and Paul rises to the top now as we go through this what kept Paul so calm what kept him so tethered where he could say cheer up Paul had three anchors three anchors that kept his faith strong first of all he let down the anchor of ownership ownership notice what he says in verse 23 for last night, an angel of the Lord to whom I belong and who I, whom I serve stood beside me. Do you belong to him? Have you given him your life? Have you turned your life over to him? What we should be saying is, God, you're not my co-pilot. Sit up front and I'll get in the back seat. I want you to drive. Do you belong to him? Because if you belong to him in a storm, that gives you an anchor. There was an old man who was once asked, hey, what do you do in trials? What do you do in temptations? What happens when your life goes crazy? And he simply said, I lift my head toward heaven and I say, God, your property is in danger. It's a fantastic perspective. If you're the Lord's, then you're his property. Then you're his responsibility. And you might say, well, I've got this disease, this problem. Well, that's his responsibility. You belong to him. That's the anchor of ownership. Second is the anchor of service. The God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Paul is saying, I'm on this boat because I'm on a mission from God. And if you're on a mission from God, you're in his protection. You don't know his time. God knows his time. If you're serving the Lord, you're on a mission. The anchor of ownership and the anchor of service and then third is the anchor of trust paul says in verse 25 for i believe god it's going to be just like god said don't know about you but i just really want to hang out with paul paul what faith i mean dude you're in a storm we all think we're gonna die i've got three anchors down and one of them is i believe what god told me i trust his word He's a promise keeper all the way. I believe God. I sought the Lord and he heard me. He delivered me from all my fears. 
It's amazing. It's just an amazing faith from Paul. Then comes a point where some of the men are trying to get in the lifeboat. And Paul says to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. They're trying to navigate a smaller ship instead of the bigger one. They think jumping ship's going to save them. So the soldiers cut the ropes to the lifeboat and let it drift away. Now they're listening to the preacher. You have been so worried that you haven't touched food for two weeks, Paul says. Please eat something now for your own good, for not a hair of your heads will perish. Now, I have an interesting question. If Paul had just said, God told me that we're going to make it, everybody's going to make it. God has foreordained that we should all make it through the storm and we're all going to live. We're all going to be delivered. If that's true, then here he says, wait, don't get in that boat. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Now, the captain could have said, what difference does it make if it's all in the will of God that we survive? It makes no difference at all whether we're in this boat or that one. Paul says, no, don't get in that lifeboat. You won't live. He just said you will live, but you'll only live as long as you stay in this ship. So you have on one sense, one hand, God foreordaining an outcome. And Paul states that. But then he says, wait, you have to make the right choice about which boat you're going to go into. Now, some will say, with or without human cooperation, God is sovereign. We will get his will done. Others will say, well, the response of man is so crucial. And I contend it's actually quite simple. Both of them are true. One is given from a divine perspective, the other from a human perspective. From the human perspective, we are implored to make the right choice. From a divine perspective, we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So Paul says, yes, God fordained it, but don't get in that boat or it's not going to work. Paul's taking charge and he's just so practical. He says, look, here's what we need, guys. We haven't eaten for a while. So what we need is prayer and a good breakfast. He's so practical. And when he, and when he said these things, he took bread and he gave thanks in the presence of them all. It's interesting. Should we pray in a restaurant like this in front of people out loud? I mean, I'm not sure I want to, but why not? Paul did it in front of all of these 276 people including the centurion and the helmsman. I was waiting in a queue in the supermarket and was talking to the checkout person about the food I was getting for people and how interesting it is to go and buy things that weren't normal things I would buy. And I was explaining that I was getting these food for people because they couldn't go due to the coronavirus. And I thought, oh, this is great. Oh, maybe not great. I was a little bit unsure. And then they kept asking me, you know, what I was doing for work in which I explained that I was basically doing this, but not for money, for my church family, because I was on a mission. And the, the guy said, well, what do you do for money? I said, in all honesty, I pray. I pray that God will look after us in these stormy times. And he has done, and is continuing to do that. And I spoke about the promises of God. And you know what? Nobody in the queue could leave the shop. But like being stuck on the boat, they heard about God's love and protection. They couldn't leave because they needed to get 500 rolls of toilet roll. Or something else, maybe. But it was like a perfect setup. 
they couldn't leave. I was being prompted to talk about God's goodness. You see, Paul prays in the presence of them all, and then they were all encouraged and they took food themselves. Are you ready to let God handle your problems? Are you ready to let him take the wheel of the direction of your life? The God who knows the future knows which direction your life needs to go. How many of you are in a storm right now? How many have been struggling and you don't seem to be making any headway against your circumstances? How many have been trying to do it by yourself and now you're ready to let God do it? So as we close, Romans 8:28, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. God's grace is the constant of our lives. Let's learn to find it and learn to lean on it. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.